Now, this is, this is, but by the way, this is what's good, because I'm not in another class of teacher. I'm like, I mentioned Roman Catholicism this morning, and in their priestly class, you're in a different box. I'm not in a different box, and so anything I say from the pulpit is completely, if it's not in line with the word, push back. Dave thinks I misspoke, he's about to push back. Let me have it. Yes, that is what it is. Let me repeat that for the, let me repeat that. Let me, you're going to say Saul, right? Or is that three? Judas Iscariot. Judas, okay, hold on. Hold, hold, hold. Let me, I'm just going to repeat your question for the tape, and then, <laughs> then you can chastise me. Hold on. Um, I said in the message this morning that um, I'm not aware of anyone, anywhere being scolded, rebuked because they are in the condition of being demon and possessed. That no, nobody said, well, why'd you let that happen to you? Or why were you playing with the Ouija board? Or why were you praying to the ancestral spirits or whatever? That in every case we come across demon-possessed people, um, they, they, if anything, are causes of pity. They're oppressed. And there's no indication. We don't know what causes someone to become demon-possessed. And it's popularly understood that, that it, you do it to yourself or something in your family line does it to you. Nothing, I, this is what I said, nothing I see as Scripture backs that notion up. Dave disagrees. You disagree too. I'm not saying that that's true or false. I'm just saying I don't know of anything in here that backs that up. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I don't know where that idea comes from. Dave thinks he does. Hit it. Yeah, I, I would say that Judas, the question is Judas, J- Judas Iscariot is previously determined to betray Jesus, and then when he leaves after the Last Supper, the text says, and Satan entered him. Um, is that your example? What's the other example? Let me deal with both. Um, is it Nebuchadnezzar who got her, uh, who is it that God sends a demon to? Saul. Saul. Okay, Saul. So, the two examples, no, no, this is good. This is good stuff, people. Be Bereans. Paul goes and he teaches, and they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Thank you, Dave. He's doing us all a service. Myself, most especially. He just doesn't need to take as much delight in it, but that's okay. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. Okay, um, okay, fair enough. First, I would say that um, I don't know if the Satan entering into Judas is the equivalent with these demoniacs. When we see the demoniacs, they're like falling on the ground. They're, there's a sense in which Satan controls the world, right? He just offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this world. And in, um, in John 8, your sons are your father the devil, your desire is to do his will. There's a sense in which all unbelievers are under the sway of Satan. I'm not sure if Satan entering him to direct him in this particular way would be the equivalent of what we see as demoniacs. So maybe that's more the specificity I'm getting at. When you see demoniacs in the New Testament, they're living in like graveyards and they're shunned. They're not sophisticated, smart people. They're, they're like cutting themselves and they're falling into fires and they're, they're uh, does that make sense? So there's no indication Judas is doing that. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. No, no. Fair, no, fair enough. Fair enough. So we still don't know. It's only an inference why Satan entered Judas. I would say he's an unbeliever. 
in other words, you're assuming because Judas was not just an unbeliever, but a wicked unbeliever who's going to betray Jesus, that's why. The text doesn't spell that out. That may be a valid inference, and you've got a fair point, and I'll chew on Judas some more. Um, but that's still an inference. But can you give me at least the demoniacs that Jesus meets in the Gospels never get rebuked? Like, why'd you let that happen to yourself? That's the main point I'm getting at, is the demoniacs that we see who primarily look like oppressed people are never scolded for being in that condition. Oh, the cultural view is you did something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Sure, sure. No, no. That's, but in the man-born blindness, the whole point of that story is to show that they're wrong for thinking that. Right. Okay. But it's still the okay. And in Saul, Saul's case, it's a judgment from God, but he's still not inviting it directly. I mean, in other words, God sends the Spirit. Saul doesn't ask the Spirit. You know what I mean? In this one case with Saul, the Lord removed his Holy Spirit from him and sent an evil or harmful spirit to torment him. And that actually probably does look more like the demoniacs. The demoniacs seem like people tortured by, um, being hurt by, being, you know, um, abused by demons, as opposed to what happens with with, uh, Judas and Satan, because he's able to go talk, he's able to go do stuff, you know. Um, And in Saul's case, again, though, Saul is not, yeah, is it? Yeah, no, that's good. That's a fair point. It's definitely a judgment from God. He offers the uh, sacrifice, and then he, um, then he uh, doesn't kill Agag and saves the sheep and makes a gold statue of himself. And in response, God does that. No, no, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Um, let me pause and give a plug for an out-of-print book. Um, on this whole issue of demon possession and dealing with modern-day ministries and Frank Peretti and stuff, this is easily the best book I'm aware of. David Powlison wrote this. He is an excellent and very gentle writer, and he's writing, trying to make sense of what do we do with the modern-day deliverance movements. Um, I'll be happy to let you borrow this if you want to read this. It's out of print, but Power Encounters is hands down without peer, the best book I've read on the subject of, of that. And he critiques and looks at the uh, movement. It's, it's he's the one that's making the point that none of the demoniacs, and I guess I overstated that none of the demoniacs in the Gospels get accused, like, why'd you let this happen to yourself? Why did you? I bought this used on Amazon. You can still pick copies of this up used on Amazon, but it's out of, it's out of print, sadly. He probably made the more limited claim. None of the demoniacs that Jesus encounters get rebuked. And I established that to no one. And then you came up with Saul. At least Saul's a good example. Judas may well be. So fair enough. I can see the point. Um, but yes. Yes, Elsa. But if we believe God is Yes. Yes, yes. 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 And entering, having, using Satan, God uses Satan, right? Yes. So he ordained yes. Satan would use Judas. Yes. Yes. She's playing the Calvinist card there. Okay. Yeah. And I'm a seven pointer, so I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That brings this up, yeah. Yep, yep. 
This, this book deals with that. I, see, I anticipated this one. Uh, John Piper's Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Christ. Um, but no, I mean, stop and think about this. Jesus could defeat Satan at any point in time with a word. Easier than that, according to Hebrews, he upholds all things by the power of his word. He could simply stop causing Satan to be. Right? Jesus is actively using energy or strength or power to keep Satan being through the power of his word, right? Anyone who wants to try to sidestep the issue of God and the problem of evil has got to deal with that because there will come a time where he does throw him into the lake of fire and he could simply start, and we see in Job that Satan gets a leash and again, notice that Satan perfectly obeys the restriction. You, you can't touch him, he doesn't touch him. You can't kill him, he doesn't kill him. You know what I mean? Um, again, the same authority we see in Luke, we see there. Okay then, how do you, what do you do with this? And that is God is sovereign over all things, including the devil and demons. And you, you, got, you can't hide from that fact, you can't dodge that. The way you try to dodge that is you end up with a chess match motion, the notion of the sort of the divine wrestling match. It's just not what you see in scripture. Again and again and again, Satan's, can I go do this? Yes, but you can't kill him. Okay, can I, can I strike his flesh? Yeah, but you know what I mean? And the demons, he just, they obey, they obey, they obey. And when Jesus shows up and there's this big conflagration, he speaks and it's over. Um, a mighty fortress is our God. One little word shall fell him, you know? Um, and so you, you got to recognize that either tacitly or actively, God is approving in some sense or allowing in some sense all demonic activity, all of Satan's activity. There's no way around that, um, especially when he's sending demons to Saul, you know what I mean, and, and things like that. Um, although there is some debate because the Hebrew ra'ah can just mean harmful. It, it's, it depends in what category you put it in, in a, in a like, Calamity befalls a city. It's ra'ah. But it's also the same word for the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra'ah, good and evil. So a harm, some people have argued, I don't, I think it probably is a demon, but some people have argued it's just like a bad, he's, he's anxiety and fear and a trembling spirit, which you see in Deuteronomy. I'll cause your heart to tremble. You'll flee before the rustling of a leaf. In the morning, you'll say, if only it was night. And at night, you'll say, if only it was morning. And so, there, so God certainly can afflict people with anxiety and fear and, and disquiet. I just tend to think a harmful or a ra'ah spirit is probably a demon, probably. Um, I can't be certain on that, but... Um, You've got all sorts of passages um, that talk about God doing those types of things, and yet God is good, and he hates evil, and there's a tension here, and people have to, try, have to reconcile that tension, and there's various ways of attempting to do it. The two most common are to affirm the one and lop off the other, you know? And I, I think the answer is found in um, insisting that God is good, he himself never does evil, he, he abhors evil, and God is sovereign over all things, and affirming both those propositions, and then trying to find some way to, to fit and understand them in connection with each other. But, you know, go, go to Genesis 50.20. Let's, let's turn to Genesis 50.20. Is it too late for me to say no? 
Can I interrupt? You just did. No, absolutely. While we turn to Genesis 50, <laughs> as we turn to Genesis 50:20, um, Lee is going to pass out the uh, the Resurrection Sunday brunch sign-up sheet. Um, 50:20. Um, one of the one of the tricks you'll notice is that when anybody, scientists, theologians, whatever encounter something hard to understand that they don't understand, the first thing they do is they give it a name so they feel better about it. So C.S. Lewis famously observed, to say that birds fly south by instinct is simply to say we have no idea why they fly south. Right? We don't know what's going on. No, you've never heard that one before? What? Oh, okay. And we don't know what, what, where's the instincts located in their brain. They, they fly by instinct. But the second you name it, you feel better about it. Oh, of course, they fly by instinct. It's like Trinity. You know, we put this handle on a bunch of truth that we don't understand. And so one of the things theologians do, is, by the way, here's a here, little grammatical lesson. That's called to reify something, R-E-I-F-Y, to reify, to take an abstract concept, make it concrete by naming it. And we reify things all the time, like gravity, we're not entirely, we know there's a force pulling things that we don't fully, we, gravity did it, you know, and now we feel better, of course, it was gravity did it, you know. Um, and, and, and I know we're making advancements moving along. My point is, the first thing we do is we name it, so then we feel a little safer about it. Like, do you believe in the Trinity? I believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in the Trinity, you know. And so here are the same things going on here in Genesis 50, 20. Theologians talk about concurrence. Ah, now we all feel better about a concurrence. Concurrence is the name given to the concept that um, two agents can act in harmony or a concert or concurrence with each other such that neither's agency cancels out the other. We want to think of things as either or. Either I did it or Marina did it. Either God did it or JP did it or whatever. We want to get this binary either or. What scripture presents, and I can show you at least two or three instances like this, is this concert of operation where you want to say, and I'll, I'll just say it simply, it looks like it's 100% the person and there's 100% God. I'll show you at least two instances of concurrence clearly. Genesis 50:20 is one of the clearest. The example here is Joseph's brothers just hear that Jacob's died. And Jacob, Joseph has already forgiven his brothers, but they think, well, maybe he just did it because good old dad was there. And now that, go, now that Jacob's dead, now he's going to whoop up on us and we're going to get our comeuppance and he's going to wreck his vengeance upon us because Joseph is in a position to do exactly that. He's the second highest person in the Egyptian government. He could just order them dead and they're dead, right? He could sell them into slavery, right? And so they come to him in trembling and um, um, we'll pick it up in 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command. Remember, dad told you. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So dad told you to forgive us, so please forgive us, is what they say. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers came to him and fell down before him, exactly like his dream at the very beginning when they bowed down to him. Here it is, the fulfillment. Well, and earlier when they wanted food. Um, Behold your servants. His brothers fell and wept, I mean, fell down before him. Behold your servants. And Joseph said to them, now get this. Do not fear, 
For am I in the place of God? And then verse 20 is, is here's concurrence. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, two things. A lot of people try to turn this into you meant, but God turned. The Hebrew is absolutely in parallel. There's two meanings. And grammatically, you need to have some really good reasons why you make the same word in the same context in the same sentence mean two different things. There are times you can do that, but you, the, the onus is on you to argue why. So when he says parallelly, you meant da-da-da-da-da, but God meant da-da-da-da-da, the most natural understanding is the word mean means the same thing in both instances. You, you with me so far? Okay, so the brothers mean, so let's work backwards with the brothers and then move it over to God. So, so what's he saying? You intended, planned, and carried out evil. Okay, what do you mean by evil? Well, you kidnapped me, and you faked my death, and you sold me into slavery, right? That's moral evil we're talking about, right? You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. What is the antecedent of the pronoun it there in verse 20? It has to be the evil. The Hebrew is, again, even more emphatic because ra'ah is a feminine. Just trust me. Some languages have masculine, neuter, and feminine. This is a, a feminine particle, and it has to link back to because the it is feminine. The only word it can be in agreement to is the evil. You meant evil against me, and God meant it for good. And what you get is two parties meaning one and the same event. The brothers meant evil against him. God meant that exact same thing for good. He meant the evil for good, which gets us to the, the it's not paradoxical, but it looks almost like one. It, 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 confusing. God meaning evil for good. And what Joseph's saying is God caused this to happen. The very thing that you did, he caused for good purposes, even though you did it and are worthy of judgment. And, and it removes from us immediately the, well, well, if God meant it, then it's not their fault. No, they meant evil against him. Bad for them. Well, if God did it, then he's evil. No, no, no. God meant good through the evil. Let me show you one or two other examples. Go to Philippians. Oh, yes. Earlier, earlier he did. Joseph did kind of, you know, get a little bit of, you know, back on them. Absolutely. When he saw Benjamin, he told, come back and bring your dad. And, you know, absolutely. He, he messes around with them for a little bit. But here, this is after that's happened, and he's forgiven them now fully. He's not going to do anything more. So, no, you're absolutely right, Bennett. But this is after that happened. Go, go to Philippians chapter 2. Okay? Um, Genesis 50-20 would be the negative side of concurrence. Um, the negative, well, the the, the probably the most difficult side, but there's a passage that teaches the exact same thing positively that you've read a thousand times or something close to that, and uh, it just doesn't trouble us as much. Philippians 2.14. No, not 14, sorry. That's the one I have my kids memorize all the time. Um, 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Okay. That's like a life verse for my kids. Um, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, energo, JP, energo, that's energo, okay, yeah, okay, okay, Um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, get to work in fear and trembling, working out your salvation, okay, 
Why? For it is God who works, same word, in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So the question then is, am I at work or is God at work? Yes. There's concurrence. It's just we don't trip up on that one because like, oh, it's good things that are happening. Butterflies and, you know, puppy dog tails and, you know, all those things. There's good things are happening here. Same concept. Two agents are working and neither one's canceling out the other. We are hardwired to think if God's causing me, get this, not just to desire to do something. It's not like God put the desire in your heart, now go do it. God is claiming responsibility both to cause me to want to do something and to do it, to accomplish it, and that's the basis why I need to get to work. And so as much as that may seem intuitive, well, if God's causing me to will and to do, I can just sit back and let go and let God and buy into Keswick theology and just, you know, when God wants me to stop beating my wife, he'll move my heart to do it. It doesn't work that way. I need to get to work. The Puritans talk about something they call holy sweat, um, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, yet in, with, and through that, God's at work. Now, get this. I'm not claiming to know how that perfectly works together. All I'm insisting is that's what the Bible teaches. So no, it's not like I sat here and I've got this all figured out and I can draw you a big diagram and a chart. Rather, the Bible seems to, as much as I might commonsensically think it's either God did it or I did it, again and again and again, the Bible seems to indicate no. The Bible teaches this thing we call concurrence. And just because I've named it doesn't mean I fully understand it. Okay, that was a long loop. Questions on that, because that's a big mouthful and a heavy, heavy topic to bring up. I get that. Questions on this issue. Do you want to see one more example of concurrence at work? Okay, 2 Samuel 24, 1. The reason, by the way, I've got these passages memorized is I was in this class, while you turn them, I was in this class at the Master's College on the problem of evil. And, um, and it basically, what? 2 Samuel 24, 1. 2 Samuel 24, 1. And, and basically, in this class, we tried to work through the issue of the problem of evil. And, and the conclusion you've got to walk away with is that God ordained that it was a good thing in his ultimate long-term goals and purposes that evil exists in the world for a little while. And from God's perspective, it is a little while. And there'll be a day when it's done. But God's going to receive more glory. The Son will be more glorified. People will know God better. I mean, think about it this way. A fallen and redeemed humanity will know and enjoy God far better than an unfallen humanity. If we had never fallen, we would never know that God is patient. We would never know that he is kind. We'd never know that he's gracious. We'd never know that he's a savior. We'd never know that he's self-sacrificing because there would be no cause for the display of those things. We'd also never know he was holy, just, and, 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 and judged sin. None of those things would be known about God had there been no fall. Think about that. We only learn those aspects or characteristics of God through the events of the fall. So 2 Samuel 24, 1, okay? And this is heavy-duty stuff. I know, I know, I know. Let me get there. With all my jibber-jabber, and I didn't turn there. Okay. Okay. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Unless there be any doubt in your mind, is that sin? Read verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, 
I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, if that's not bad enough, jump over to 1 Chronicles 21.1, which has a parallel account, of the, keep your thumb here, parallel account of the exact same event with a slightly different description. So, so keep your thumb in 2 Samuel 24.1 and go to 1 Chronicles 21.1. Yeah, you see it, huh? It's a slight little change? Yeah, okay. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. <laughs> what do you do with that? Now, you can, you can certainly say, you could, one answer could be, well, this is an error. One of the copyists somewhere said God, and I should have just said Satan. Because if it's both texts said Satan, there'd be no problem, right? Well, Satan incited David, okay, no problem. The problem is, that, that's not the answer. We don't want to say the Bible has errors, so then what do you do? Um, God is sovereign, and, and so he can say, I did that over anything, even when it's the activity of Satan himself. That, that's the conclusion you've got to come to. That, that God is, the point is, according to James, God himself tempts no one, and we learn from Chronicles, it wasn't actually God whispering in Satan, in, in David's ear, going, psst, go down where is Hey, hey, you know? Um, but, he could still stand behind it as saying, yeah, I did that. I did that. Yes? So how is God not That's the, that's the question. Um, no, that, that's a fair, that's a, that is the question and a fair one. Let me, oh, the, the, repeating for the tape, and how is God not responsible um, for the sin of David? Because Charles Manson never actually killed anyone, but he killed through proxy by directing people to do things, and you know, Sharon Tate was killed. And, um, so how is God then not responsible? I assume you mean morally responsible, because he claims causality responsibility, right, in, in 2 Samuel 24, 1. He says, I did that. So, um, okay, no, fair enough question. And the answer there is a difficult one. Um, it, it's, not, it's not hard to explain, it's just hard to accept. God's God, and he says he's not. Now the short version, that's the short version, the slightly more expanded version is, if God were to add evil into Joseph's brother's heart, David's heart. Um, I, I would say that there, you can make a strong case for God being morally responsible. But if you go with like what Proverbs 16.1 says, the, stream, the king's heart are streams in the hands of the Lord. He directs them wherever he wills. If God inciting David is simply directing David's evil heart this way or that way, then he simply causing or determining that an evil agent will act evilly in a certain way that in other words, you're so responsible for being, David's so responsible for being evil. David owns this. He doesn't cast it off on God, right? David confesses it. Now, you could argue wrongly, right? It gets back to, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Dave met, David really did this. David really chose to do this. David confesses doing this for evil. And he's like, I sinned. And Genesis 50, 20, God's purpose is good in chastising Israel. And we've got to say he's God, and he gets to do stuff like that, and 
Okay. I'm, I'm just saying that's the presentation of the problem and answer the Bible gives. Whether you're satisfied by it, I, I, can't, I can't speak to that. But um, that's, yes, Elsa. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, no, I, that's, that's else, well said, Elsa. Let me, let me explain this. Let's take the classic example, even better, of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? Six times or something. But the text also says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and so people argue, well, here is God. I think that's just two ways of describing the same event. Pharaoh hardening his heart, God hardening his heart. I don't think it's like they took turns. First God hardened him, then Pharaoh did it. I think we're looking at one and the same event because I'm holding to concurrence. Pharaoh's hardening his heart, God's hardening his heart. Okay, here's, here's the question. Here's, here's, watch me lower this cup. How do I lower the cup? Do I, I, I simply remove what's sustaining it, right? Okay. Which is why I talked about the notion of pouring an evil. There's two ways God can harden Pharaoh's heart. One, God could add evil. So to use a stupid analogy, Pharaoh wakes up and he's at evil level five. And then God hardens him and he's at evil level six. And then he's at, you know what I mean, Right? If that's what's going on, I think you have a real problem with the issue of God making people more wicked than they are. I wasn't that wicked when I woke up, and then when God was done with me, I was, right? Now, here's the other way. God's grace restraining sin in Pharaoh gets removed. So Pharaoh's conscience just isn't bugging him that much that day. Pharaoh's fear of man and what others will think just not concerning him that much. And all that grace, which is stopping him from being as wicked as he could possibly be, gets slowly removed. Now, is God doing Pharaoh any wrong when he lets Pharaoh's leash out? No. That would be my attempted suggestion at God directing and hardening. In other words, I I start with the assumption, because of the depravity of man, that um, were God's grace not operative, we would all be as evil as we could be. Utter depravity. Like, why aren't people not running around flying more planes into buildings? Because God's grace is restraining sin in the world. He restrains sin through the conscience. He restrains sin through human government. He restrains sin through this basic sort of, you know, um, fear of what other people think and the fear of man. I don't want you to think I'm despicable. So that's why children are so cute, because they say what all of us think. So the kid going, give me that's mine. You know, we're all doing that in our hearts. We just know if I say that, you'll hate me. So I just got to be like, no, no, you, you, you have the last piece. My inner three-year-old screaming, right? You know, you, you, no, no, right? And the children just don't know that yet, so they just say it. This is, you know, it's like a little microcosm of my heart is my children running around. Um, and why are we not all more wicked? Is it because there's some good in us? No. God's grace is holding back sin. 
And that's, that's the language used in Thessalonians, till the one who removes is holding him back, is removed. And so if God removes grace, has he done us any wrong? By definition, we talked about this last week, by definition, grace cannot be owed. If it's grace, God's free to take it back. And if grace is what's stopping us from running around killing each other, then I, I think the simplest understanding of God hardening somebody is just retracting grace. In which case, he does nobody any wrong. Go, go to Acts chapter four. What would you say, let's take a gambit, is the most evil act ever to occur? The crucifixion. Certainly in the top five, right? You might be able to argue Adam and Eve's rebelling against God or Judas betraying Jesus, but crucifixion's gotta be up there as one of the most evil acts ever. Listen to the, the way, and again, the New Testament church somehow has got their heads wrapped around what I'm calling concurrence. And again, it's just a handhold name to talk about how the agent, what I'm arguing is, let me put it as simply as I can, that God can sovereignly cause what I will freely choose. And we want to say it's either or. And I get that, and I get why you think that, and I'm just saying the Bible doesn't lay it out that way. God sovereignly causes what I will freely choose. You want to put it in the simplest forms, that's what I'm arguing for. I don't know about the fall of Lucifer. I have very little scriptural insight into the fall of Lucifer. I don't know how, what to do with that because I have so little text on that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, admittedly, what's go- but that's not the story that we get much insight into. So, no, fair enough. There's a big question mark in my life. How the heck did that happen? I don't know. Now, God hasn't told us much about that, which is largely why I don't know, and he could tell us what happened. I don't know. I don't know what happened there. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things revealed belong to me. God didn't reveal what happened there. We get very, very, we get most of our insight into Lucifer's tangential. And then you've got to figure out how much of this is actually being spoken to the king of Tyre and Sidon, and how much of this is actually being spoken to Lucifer. And you've got to deal with all that. It's in Ezekiel. Um, I don't know. I don't know. And I'll admit freely, Lucifer is the enigma. Like, I got the sausage of an idea um, how that happened. I just want to look at how the New Testament church spoke about the crucifixion. Acts 4. And notice how they will both blame the people and recognize God's sovereignty. They don't think that if God's sovereign, then it's not your fault. Or if you did it, then God didn't. And I know this is heavy, 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 heavy stuff to wrap your head around, which is, we actually went through this in this class about a year ago, but I figure this is the type of stuff to hit every now and then just because it's heavy, heavy stuff. Verse 27. Now let's go back to, oh, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, notice the title they call him, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they quote Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed? For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They attribute Psalm 2, the people were plotting, the people were scheming, they were raging, they were doing stuff. 
exactly according to what God's hand had predetermined would take place. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you I know how this all fits together. I'm just saying the Bible keeps presenting the both. You're plotting and you're scheming and you're doing evil and God's sovereign plan's being worked out. That's, I'm just affirming the Bible teaches both those propositions are active and true. I'm not pretending I've got my graph to show you and here's how it all works. I'm just saying, apparently, that's true. You with me? Don't mis- Did you say something, Lois? No, okay. Um, yes, Wendell. I think a lot of this has to do with the Hebrew dysphagia about faith. Mm. You bring up as well. Uh, you know, you and if you certainly look at the scripture as, okay, if this is so, if this is so, and I think we need to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying take a blind thing, but faith in Hebrews talks to us about those things unseen. What God has given us, you know. And and let me be clear, there's nothing logically absurd about these propositions. They're just hard for us to wrap our heads around. There is no direct logical contradiction. God God is not irrational. And you can't, nothing in the Bible says is ultimately like A doesn't equal A or, you know what I mean? This is much more intuitive. We we assume the way causality works and we assume the way um, responsibility works. And so you look at something like it would sure look like God would be responsible for that in a moral sense. And he says, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I know we're out of time. I'll just summarize. Go read some point God's answer in Romans 9, where Paul just says, Look, the clay doesn't get to the potter. Why are you doing what you're doing? At the end of the day, he's God, we're not, we have to take his word, and we don't get to say account for yourself. And that, that gets back to the humbling from last week of, you don't get to set the terms. He's God, he's, you're not, he doesn't owe you anything. And these are hard, heavy issues, keep chewing on them. I don't expect everyone's like, okay, now that I've explained it, everyone should be on board. Keep, keep, keep chewing, keep chewing, keep, um, keep working, and we'll talk about this more later. God bless.